thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at the system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. In five, four, three, two, the evil has gone. Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and today I am proud to be joined by all of my co-hosts. With me is Steve Jeffries, Andy Palmer, Yogi Polywall. And we want to start by just giving our sincere and heartfelt congratulations to our good friend Yogi Polywall, who just got back from India and got married again. Yes, I, I got back. New wife this time. That's right. Uh, this one was arranged. First one was for love. <laughs> Neither of them were happy about it. So our recording schedule is going to be difficult because Yogi will be commuting between his two families mm-hmm. from here on mm-hmm. out. Yes, the only one that knows about my true identity is my podcast listener fans. But we did get a sitcom deal out of it. <laughs> How will he maintain his podcast schedule and his two wives? Coming soon to NBC. Produced by Judd Apatow. <laughs> Uh, but congratulations, Yogi. Yogi has the henna uh, tattoos on him, uh, all ceremonial and such. Yeah, that's right. I've got uh, uh, a henna on my hands and feet. It uh, It is a thing that I put on because I'm now a married man. Oh. My family got to meet uh, my beautiful wife, and uh, it was pretty awesome. I'm very happy about it. Yeah, there's a bitchin' picture of you, you two getting married. That's and right. You're in a, a big turban with a feather. I am. I am. And that's a, made an emoji out of it. It's great. You know, it uh, it, it was pretty fun. It was uh, pretty it is wild. Way more colorful than the wasp weddings <laughs> I'm used to. It um it was uh, great to have uh, my wife and her family meet uh, my entire family and um, a whole bunch of people from uh, around uh, the U.S. and a couple uh, one of my friends from uh, Seattle joined us and um, it was a truly uh, fantastic gathering. Yeah, and we look forward to when you have a wedding that we can all make it to. <laughs> yeah, none of you fuckers showed up, and honestly, <laughs> you got married twice and we didn't go. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Well, we got a third wedding happening in Antarctica <laughs> in two months, so I'm gonna need to take off three months then. I will say that colorful photo of Yogi's wedding. It's uh, it's nice to see a, a white lady in such an Indian photo who's not plotting to destroy it. <laughs> Yeah, they they were her family uh, uh, was was fantastic, but they were very worried about uh, acting as if they were culturally appropriating. I'm like, you're you're marrying me, like you, it's, just, <laughs> it's fine. He, Wait, there was a video uh, actually right before you left, and I, I was wondering if you met the um, Rajasthan uh, robot monkey that made <laughs> all those other monkeys really sad. No, I did not meet the uh, Rajasthan robot monkey. Oh. Uh, he was invited to the wedding, but he declined, just like you. Because <laughs> you both have a heart of stone. I do like that white people went from starving your country to being like really overly apologetic. <laughs> Very sensitive about offending anybody. Like, And it only took like a hundred years. I mean, you know. Is this one of the week-long weddings it, where it, people can just kind of filter through? It lasted about four-ish days. It could have been longer. Uh, the The main thing I took from this wedding was that the reason Indian weddings last so long, because if they're any shorter, there'd be more Indian divorces. Because <laughs> after this process, I, I don't want to deal with that ever fucking again. <laughs> fucking after five days, 
of dealing with uh, uh, dancing and henna and just all the fucking bullshit. I, w- I will never deal with this ever again. You should see the divorce party. <laughs> <laughs> it's twice it's twice as long. 15 days and you have to apologize to everyone that thanked you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we're very thrilled to have uh, all the boys back together. The boys are back in town. All mm-hmm. four of the hosts are together. And we've got a great subject today because we're talking today about Daniel Lebetsky. Well, uh, before we get into that, I wanted to actually address something that's a bit topical. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say, um, <clears throat> Mamma Mia, my coronavirus crashed to the stock market, <laughs> is an offensive joke, and uh, I would like to unequivocally condemn anybody who makes it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just imagining, like, one of our Italian listeners has contracted coronavirus. And that's and the last thing he hears. They're in isolation. And they just to take their mind off their own mortality in the sense that they mm-hmm. have wasted mm-hmm. their life. And, <laughs> and the Grim Reaper is walking right up to them, and there's nothing they can do. They put on their favorite podcast <laughs> as a form of escapism. It's, it's second favorite. Yeah, I mean, favorite. Come on, Sean. Let's be honest. What's After said? listening to the new Chapo, and they, they need some more stuff. Right. S and P's down what three percent? Yes, yeah. that's great. A thousand points or something on the the Dow Jones. Yeah, the uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, was down like three percent on the day, and I was just thinking it'd be great if it was like the Deus Ex characters created the fucking fake coronavirus to kill Bernie Sanders, but then they <laughs> accidentally crashed the global economy right before his election, and he wins in a landslide. You know, one thing I know about coronavirus is that we don't hear about that protest anymore. What happened to that? Ever since this is fucking. Virus came out. No more Hong Kong protests going on. Uh, well, they want to catch it, so <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. They actually didn't get it in Hong Kong because their uh, tear gas masks kept it out. <laughs> That's true. They're already prepared, actually. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, but yes, we will be watching the coronavirus and our sympathies to any listeners who have contracted it. We are <laughs> we are pulling for you, including ourselves in two months. <laughs> yes. We live in a major metropolitan area. <laughs> We're all gonna get it. I was just thinking at work, like, I haven't really accomplished anything I want to accomplish with my life. And you just start thinking about that when, like, pandemic is in the news again. I I was just thinking at not work, man, it's nice that I don't have to take the train right now. Are you going to go out and try and get it, Sean? Yeah. You try and contract it on purpose. But the great thing is, like, I mean, besides stand-up achievements, the only thing that I, like, really want to do is I want to get high and watch all of the Oliver Stone, Vladimir Putin interviews, because that's, like, the closest you can get to smoking a blunt with Vladimir Putin. <laughs> haven't we already yeah. done that at least once? No, I haven't watched the whole thing through. Oh, okay. And You've now, seen parts of it. Yeah. <laughs> now my wife would get mad at me if I was high for more than like six hours. You know, Sarah had a cold when we were on our way to India and in London to Dilly, she coughed during that flight the entire time. <laughs> and the uh, flight flight attendants like came over multiple times to be like, hey, are you are you, are you all right? Uh, are, you, are you OK? And I was very happy she was sick and not me because I know that her they, be- they used the gun. No, they didn't use the gun, but they were like, if you're sick. We should tell the authorities. Like, they were very uh, 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 intent on making my wife tell someone that she's sick. The temperature jet gun, just for a clear. Oh, I, th- I, just, I did not know what kind you meant. <laughs> Sarah was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I just I just got off this cruise ship and, uh, <laughs> you know, I've been feeling weird since then. Is that a cruise after inspecting the iPhone factory? <laughs> was, was I in Wuhan? No, that was months ago. <laughs> I remember when the uh, the Ebola virus uh, uh, made its big New York debut, mm-hmm. and I uh, 
I started to feel like I had a cold, so I went to uh, a pharmacy and bought just a thermometer. And like, both me and the cashier were freaked out. <laughs> uh, but yes, um, we're talking today about Daniel Lebetsky. Uh, Daniel Lebetsky is the uh, founder of uh, Kind Bars, or I believe the the company is called the Kind Food, the Kind Healthy Snacks Company. Oh. Um, and you might be familiar with these things, you know, particularly if you live in the United States. They have this colorful packaging with you know the orange, the red, the green, the blue stripes on it. Um, and I think they, uh, in addition to the pack uh, packaging. Really, more than that, the the company kind of advertises themselves as a healthy and all natural, but but also as kind. That's where the entire name comes from. They mm -hmm. promote doing kindness and and doing good. That's that their entire branding is wrapped up into that. And of course, Daniel Lebetsky has made himself a billionaire off this. So I kind of wanted to start the episode by just playing maybe uh, thirty seconds of an official kind healthy snacks commercial, um, and then we can kind of respond to the claims within. But this commercial has been viewed. More than 14 million, off almost 15 million times on YouTube. So I think this is kind of a, a fairly representative portrayal of how they market themselves and how they are perceived by the world at large. Kindness is magical. So in that sense, I guess Daniel really is a magician. We don't just aim to have great products that sell well and be beloved. We aim to change the way people see business as a force for social good. That's what we're here to do today. They say you are what you eat, and it matters what you're made of. That's why every kind product is a reminder to be kind to ourselves, our bodies, They're our taste buds, right now. and the world. Team building exercise. They're doing That's construction. Right. Ooh, nice scanning at the end. <laughs> oh. I do want to say, or I, I, I should mention, uh, there's a, a part in there where he's going through a door into an office and I'm uh, about 99% sure that I've gone through that exact same door into the, that exact same <laughs> office because uh, when I first moved to New York in like 2013 or 2014, mm -hmm. I actually uh, applied for a job at Kind Bar through some like uh, staffing agency. Right. And uh, I remember being so confused when looking them up uh, because this is before Kind Bars were ubiquitous. Right. And so I'm, you know, doing my pre-interview research. Sure. And I'm like, is this a, like, charity company? Because <laughs> all, everything on their website was just about everything that they give to the community. Right, right. Yeah, it, uh, they are... Did entire, not get the job. <laughs> their entire MO is that uh, their company's social message is just as important as their profit margins. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, you heard in that commercial, whatever bullshit they said about kindness is magic and mm -hmm. Danielle is a magician and <laughs> all this shit. So I just have here and I know it's not the greatest visual or it's not the greatest. It's not the greatest for an audio <laughs> podcast. It's not a visual at all. Sean. Yes. <laughs> but I have a kind bar here with us. And, uh, you know, my co-host can see it. This is the salted caramel dark, or dark chocolate nut and kind just, bar. Just to enhance the episode, Sean will be crinkling that wrapper mm -hmm. into the microphone mm -hmm. for the right. next hour yes. and 40 minutes. This is the theater of the mind is you can hear the wrapper crinkling. So, you know, this thing is here. This is our ASMR yeah. episode. <laughs> now, Sean's about to take a big bite out of it into the microphone mm -hmm. and, yes. and mm -hmm. chew uh, only for the patrons. <laughs> yeah, if you wanna, if you want the the bonus content, that comes later. 
But anyways, what I wanted to say here is if you look on the back of, of this particular kind bar, you will see the ingredients. And uh, I've looked all over this thing. You'll see the ingredients. The ingredients include unsweetened chocolate. They include alkalized cocoa. They include cocoa butter. But the one thing you won't find on this kind bar, you can look all over the, the label, the wrapper of any kind bar anywhere, uh, you won't see any certificate from Fair Trade USA, you won't see any certificate from the Fair Trade Standards, you won't see any certificate from IMO Fair Trade for Life, uh, their certificate, you don't see anything from the Rainforest Alliance, you don't see a certificate from UTS, UTZ. Uh, and uh, what these certificate uh, companies attempt to do, you might have seen them on various products, is they attempt to trace the supply chains of various of the inputs that go into various products to ensure there is not a uh slavery, trafficking, or child labor. So what you get with KindBar is a company that is marketing themselves as the kindest, most gentle company on earth that is in all likelihood 100% using child slavery to make their products. But they're kind. And this is my grub stakers. I'm Andy Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> they're kind to your body, kind to your mind. The kind movement being that your poops are better because you ate a whole bunch of nuts. How healthy is this really? Not really. I mean, uh, there was a thing we'll get into where they had a tiff with the FDA. It's like, obviously, it's it's healthier than eating, you know, Snickers bars, but uh, there's a lot of sugar in these things. Yeah, I'd probably say on, probably on par with honey roasted peanuts. Yeah, they taste good. That's the whole thing we're, we're uh, trying. I mean, I've, I've had a few bars before. In 2015, the FDA was like, you can't put healthy on this. This ain't healthy. And then 2016, they're like, ah, I mean, it's better than candy, so it's technically okay. Yeah, I had one yesterday, and then my stomach felt like shit. And between that and my job interview was my research contribution <laughs> this episode. In 2016, they were like, oh, all right, the check cleared, so right. I guess that's good. Right. But I want to I wanna go over uh, the very quickly the slavery thing, because people should understand how chocolate supply chains work in mm -hmm. the world. We talked about this on the Giovanni Ferraro episode, uh, the Italian chocolate billionaire. It's on the Patreon side, if you would be so inclined. But to briefly rehash how... Hey, uh, the only respite from my coronavirus <laughs> is all the slaves I control. <laughs> Mamma mia. <laughs> uh... So I'm just going to, uh, quoting from Fortune magazine, uh, the U.S. Department of Labor in 2015 conducted a survey, uh, this is for the 2013 to 2014 growing season uh, in uh, the Ivory Coast in Ghana. Uh, they found more than 2.1 million children engaged in what they call, quote unquote, objectionable labor practices. Hmm. This is uh, generally also called slavery. Um, people should know that more than two-thirds well, maybe, maybe it's not slavery. Maybe they're repaying their debt to society. <laughs> People should know that more than two-thirds of the world's cocoa supply comes from West Africa, primarily Ghana and the Ivory Coast. So that's, you know, 68%, 78% of the world's cocoa supply comes from this area, which the U.S. Department of Labor says that there are over 2.1 million child slaves working there. Uh, many of these children are trafficked, uh, uh, exposed to dangerous chemicals. They're illiterate. They're harmed if they leave. Uh, just according They're to given housing, food... <laughs> Uh, just according to Law Street... They're taught valuable trade skills. They get this podcast for free. <laughs> they might get their passports back. <laughs> <laughs> if they do a good enough job, they can move up the corporate ladder to uh, getting their passports back. <laughs> they get to uh, meet wealthy scions of American business and politics. 
So just quoting from lawstreetmedia.com, uh, children in Ghana and Ivory Coast, again, this is where 70, about 70% of the world's cocoa supply comes from. Uh, children are often sold into slavery by their parents or kidnapped. The average work week can last from 80 to 100 hours while Oof. working on the farms. These children receive no salary or education. The living conditions are brutal as children are often beaten and rarely well fed. So you talk about this kind company. This is how this guy became a fucking billionaire. <laughs> Let's just get that straight right off the bat. <laughs> right, the right. kind bars rest on a base of, sl- of human trafficking and slavery. But they taste so good, Stephen. I mean, y- you can't have good tasting bars without slavery. I don't know. You you heard Andy gave him a stomachache. So. <laughs> and that was before he knew about the slavery part. Yeah. Yeah, you completely fucked up my Counter-Strike Global Offensive game. <laughs> and just one other thing from this Fortune article. Again, this U.S. Department of Labor survey comes from 2015. Quoting from Fortune magazine, the total number of children found to be subject to child labor was a 21% increase over the previous survey five years earlier. So, again, we talked about it more on the uh, Giovanni Ferraro episode, but the industry, the chocolate industry has promised since, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, we're going to end this child slavery thing. Uh, just give us till 2020. And then just recently this year, an article came out like, mm, we're not going to meet that goal. I, I did used to eat con bars on the semi-regular. And then after the uh, Giovanni Ferrara episode, like occasionally I would have chocolate. But after that, my chocolate consumption has actually just dropped because it's just, I mean, it's kind of the same reason I went vegetarian where it's just like, I can't touch it without thinking about how gross uh a lot of the stuff is uh but then like in my mind i was like well there's not a lot of chocolate in kind bars <laughs> <laughs> yeah i had the opposite effect i just the, the guilt <laughs> made me want it so much more so my chocolate <laughs> consumption has just gone through the roof you and just jerk point. off while eating it's it a, it's <laughs> jerk off with nutella i mean honestly we, our podcast has increased kind bar consumption among sadists by 200 <laughs> percent yeah, cry, child, cry. <laughs> Chocolate tastes so good. Um, it's a cr- real crime is no one enjoying it. <laughs> but, you know, and then so there's that, and there's also, you know, palm oil. We'll talk about a bit more later. Uh, kind Bar, one of the main ingredients is palm oil. Uh, mm-hmm. Not Certainly not the only product to, to use it. Um, but I guess we could just kind of start the chronological biography of our subject today, uh, Daniel Lebetsky, because in addition to, you know, talking about his charity bullshit, which we'll also talk about, he gives the kind bar gives very little to charity compared to other companies, yet somehow they've marketed themselves as front and center on charity right. to the point where even Forbes magazine wrote a profile, which was surprisingly bare knuckle oh, yeah. calling them out on this. Um, but, you know, uh, We'll talk about that, but he also uses his own life story. Daniel uses the life story of um, his father, who is a Holocaust survivor and has a very interesting life story, but he essentially has... And Sean has some jokes for that. (laughs) He has marketed that and used it to create his multi-billion dollar company. Yeah, for this episode, I read uh, Daniel Lubetsky's book, Do the Kind Thing. You read his book, but you forgot the name of the book? Uh, Yeah, I I, I did, yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. I got it it from uh, King County Library System. Oh, nice. It's yeah. almost like there's like not much insight contained in these CEO books <laughs> to the point where you're like, what the fuck is the title? What was on that 300 pages I read? 
A bunch of cliches and like hard work build success bullshit. I mean, the book... Something about taking risks. <laughs> it know. wasn't good. I mean, I read, I think, about 35% of it uh, within two days. And uh, honestly... Uh, very bad is uh, uh, a good review of it. Did he? Do you have a paper route in the occupied territories? <laughs> no, no, he didn't do any of that. But like the entire thing is like you know, so like it's there's like three themes to to Daniel Lubezki's entire life, and it's one: his dad was in the Holocaust. He's a crazy Mexican Jew that nobody wants to work with until he tells him his great ideas. And three, he has these like nine pillars. Of uh, of uh, how his company works and why he's successful, and, and you keep referencing these nine pillars every time. But honestly, after a certain point, they don't. It's like purpose, grit, uh, honesty. <laughs> like it's, it's it's the book is like a surviving the selection process. <laughs> it's a grandizing, you know, business uh, memoir slash tell all about why he's great. It's so weird how every one of these billionaires, like after you know they do some scammy thing to become a billionaire. Mm -hmm. They'll create kind of an elaborate backstory for what it took them to, to get where they are today. Right, right. And like they, you know, in the book several times there, he reveals why he is who he is, <laughs> including a friends and family uh, LLC contribution that we'll okay. mention in a moment. But let's get back to the beginning. Uh, Danny Lubitsky, born 1968 in Mexico City to Roman Lubitsky and Sonia Lubitsky. Uh, Mexico City at the time had uh, 75% of the Jewish population of Mexico, which was about 50,000 people. Let me ask you guys this question. So I don't know about his mom's race, but I'm pretty sure she might just be Jewish that immigrated to Mexico, even though she's described as a Mexican Jew. And his dad is from, I believe, Lithuania. It's, yeah, yeah. And so is Daniel from a Lithuania and maybe not a Mexican mother, a Mexican person? Yeah. Seems like it if you grew up there. He spent his first 16 years there, and then he moved to San Antonio. That counts. But, like, what I, what's frustrating is that, like, if two African parents had a kid in France, that kid's more African than he is France. French. Does that make any sense? It's frustrating when fucking white people get to claim an ethnic background and then go back to being Jewish when they want to be Jewish and then go back to being Mexican when they want to be Mexican. Yogi, you're, you're the only one that can answer these questions. All I'm going to say is before we recorded this, you were like... Why is there someone on the Discord who changed his name to Yogi's Phrenology Tools? <laughs> it is true. Yo like, the only way to have this conversation is for us to paper bag test this guy, which <laughs> Yogi is the only person on this podcast who could get away with doing that. Wait a second. Am I fucking this wrong to be questioning this thing? Am I not right to be like, it seems to me that no, you can culturally own a uh, group if you're a white person growing up in the culture, but if you're black or brown from that culture, you don't get to claim it because you're oh, just black I or brown. No, no, that's, that's, no, that's, no, that's true. The, yeah. Either way, it, sh it should work. It's it's and it's something that like it's not that big a deal, but he constantly mentions in the book how he's a Mexican Jew and nobody wants to work with him because of his cultural heritage. And I'm not denying that since he grew up in that culture that he he has that in him, but it's it's frustrating as fuck when it's uh, part of why his ethnic background is so uh, mystifying and he can do mm -hmm. magic and shit. If you know what I mean, he does have he does still have the accent, which I mean, I guess if you moved when you were 16, you would still have the accent. I don't know. Uh, so I guess, like, if you have the accent, you can say you're Mexican. I would just say, you know, it's, it speaks to kind of the wider problem of, um, let's say, anti-materialist uh, identity politics, where essentially because he grew up fucking rich in Mexico mm -hmm. City. So he can say, I'm a marginalized person, even though uh, we fucking executed our maid, like in <laughs> season two of Narcos when we were children. 
Uh, so yeah, he grew up as like one of the fucking 1% in Mexico. And then, you know, he comes and he says, you know, my background is as a marginalized, uh, victimized person, mm-hmm. you know, forget the hundred thousand dollar loans I got to start my business. So it's, it's, it's insidious that way, certainly. Right. Uh, so his dad, uh, Ro- Roman was in the Dachau camp. Dachau, am I saying that Dachau. right? Dachau. Dachau. Dachau in the Holocaust. He cites a story. <laughs> That's the one word I can pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, cites a story where... When it a, comes to that one, Sean can hit it right in the perfect part of the back of the throat. <laughs> <laughs> Give me all the extermination camps, I'm good. Yeah. But the names of the people who died in them, much more difficult. Sounds like Dachau, Treblinka, Sobibor. I looked at Andy because he's a resident German expert, but Sean cut in real quick. <laughs> Um, Dino cites a story where his a German soldier threw a rotten potato mm. at his dad as sustenance, which as an act of kindness that is mentioned in the book. So he grew up in Mexico City, and at 12 years old is when he realized how Jew-centric his upbringing was. He was playing with a friend, and his direct quote, I said something like, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to kick you your tukus. And he said, what is tukus? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Lubitsky recalled, I thought tukus was a word in Spanish. So, you know, it wasn't like he was growing in Mexico City around only Mexican people. Right. He was isolated. He grew yeah. up relatively rich. Um, Lubetsky's father was a partner in international bonded warehouses and in United Export Trading Association, uh, both duty-free shop chains, which had co- with headquartered in Laredo, Texas, which is why they would move to San Antonio later on in life. Right. I don't know what duty-free means beyond expensive. I think it's tax-free. Oh, okay. It's like it's well, it is more expensive, so it often yeah. doesn't matter that it's tax free for you. Yeah, like all the my only reference to duty free is it's one of the really expensive stores in an airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like how it's like tax free, but it's like why do people go there if it's more expensive? So I was talking about this with a friend that traveled with me to India, and essentially, if let's say you were on a business trip and you made a fuckload of money, and you can't like declare that you made more more money than you would be importing in you just buy a whole bunch of shit swallow it in a condom (laughs) (laughs) yes you swallow it in a condom and then you poop it out later Mm -hmm. no but you could buy a whole bunch of shit at the airport and then have less cash on you so it's not Mm. technically money laundering but it is a way of uh, allowing yourself to travel with more money than you legally technically could yeah i can't uh no i don't have thirty thousand (laughs) dollars i do have this collection of vintage guitars (laughs) Um, I listened to this, um, entrepreneurs podcast that Daniel Lebetsky did. Uh, it was, you know, of course, ask kissy and he, uh, tells his, his usual story, but you know, the basic story that he tells from there is like, we we're saying his dad was a child from Lithuania set to Dachau concentration camp. Um, his dad, I think was in there when he was nine years old. He got out, he was liberated by the Americans when he was 12 years old. Um, and he also tells, you know, he, he tells that story that Yogi just told about uh, the guard throwing him the potato. Mm-hmm. And he, of course, ties this into his business. Like, this is an act of kindness. And this is what inspired me to name the company after this. Um, but he also tells kind of a, uh, I guess, disturbing story about his Lithuanian landlord. Wait, the name is supposed to be tied to the Holocaust? Yeah. I mean, he tells these stories a lot about, like, how various acts of kindness helped his father survive the Holocaust. Like, he talks about the German guard throwing him the potato as an act of kindness, even in the face of this horror. Mm -hmm. Um, And he also tells this uh, disturbing story, I'm going to kind of paraphrase, which is uh, the... uh, He said, let me run the gas chambers. (laughs) 
He's in. Uh, okay, so he's in Lithuania when his father. Maybe fa- cut that one. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. Do not. <laughs> <laughs> he's in Lithuania. Uh, Daniel Lebetsky is in Lithuania. Uh, or sorry, his dad is in Lithuania as a child. Um, his grandfather is. Uh, uh, he's living in this room with a Lithuanian landlord. And what happened when, you know, the Nazis came into the East is they would whip up these local pogroms. So they would get, you know, local anti-Semitic elements to go out and just kill Jews, basically. So Daniel on this podcast tells a story about his grand, uh, his father as a child was like looking for food. So his Lithuanian landlord took him out uh, to a pile of uh dead Jewish bodies in the middle of the street and said, oh, hey, you could grab a bite to eat from one of them or something like that. It was a very disturbing story. But then he also says that apparently his landlord like saved the family when it came time for a later Jewish roundup. So he tells this as like also a kindness story where even like bad people can engage in acts of kindness. And it's like, you know, it's a very horrifying story about human nature, but I guess it also kind of disturbed me that he all tied this back into branding for his fucking candy bar (laughs) company. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the things that's definitely apparent in the in the uh, book as well, where, you know, the entire notion of his father being in the Holocaust, as, as harrowing and as dark as that whole thing is, it flips it back into, and that's why my company <laughs> is such a good business. It's like, what? Like, you know... <laughs> that is like billionaire mindset. Yeah. It's like always be selling, even when you're talking about the Holocaust. Why? That's when that's when me and my friends started the Kindsots group. <laughs> <laughs> cut yeah. that. No, don't cut any of the Holocaust jokes. All right. So, uh, at 16 years old, his family moved to San Antonio. Top uh, it with a K. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, one of the. One of the sources said it was uh, due to anti-Semitic attacks that occurred in his in Mexico City. Uh, he in the eighties, w- he moved to the U.S. Yeah, in nineteen eighty-four, he would okay. move to the United States. Uh, before this, though, he would sp- sell watches at flea markets, uh, and eventually, where did he get those from? Oh wow, Sean! <laughs> it was actually someone that was introduced to him by his dad, who was letting him buy the watches wholesale. And you know what, Sean? You're not wrong. There is a chance. Yeah, me, me and that guard who gave me the potato <laughs> struck up an import-export business deal. It was very lucrative. Oh, Actually, man. can I tell a uh, surprisingly relevant flea market joke? Sure. sure. So when I did uh, study abroad in Germany, um, I wanted to get a bike, and everyone was like, go to the flea market. So I went to the flea market, and there were stands where people were selling uh, bikes and watches. Uh, there were also stands where people were selling uh, all of Grandpa's Nazi memorabilia. Jesus. Yeah. Did you get any? <laughs> I did not. Actually, in New York, you can find... There's there's something similar where there's a, a flea market. Uh, I think it's the Chelsea Flea Market. Mm-hmm. And the, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I went there, and there was a guy with a stand where it's mostly... More along the lines of Grandpa's communist memorabilia, but there's some Nazi memorabilia that clearly Grandpa picked off of <laughs> some uh, some some fallen individuals. Oh, really? They fell down and then they dropped things, and the other guy picked it up. It's something along those lines. Yeah, it was my uh, assumption of where that came from. You see Obama there just checking things out. Yeah, they were they were souvenirs uh, from the front. I'll take the uh, Waffen SS uniform. (laughs) 
Um, he went to uh, Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. Where if you he- like your Luger, you can keep it. <laughs> <laughs> um, he got his BA in economics and global connections. Uh, he would go study overseas in both France and Israel and received his JD from Stanford Law School in 1993. Um, and this is directly from uh, the Israel Times. He, after law school at Stanford, Lubetsky received a $10,000 fellowship given out by the Bay Area's Jewish Federation to pursue economic research in Israel and attempt to foster joint Arab-Israeli adventures. One day in a grocery store, he came across a jar of sun-dried tomato spread that he devoured in one sitting. When he went back to buy more, he was told that there was none left because the company was going out of business. Recognizing an opportunity, Lubetsky tracked down the spread manufacturers, Yoel Banesh, who was using expensive jars and other imported materials from Europe. Lubetsky convinced him to work with local Palestinian farmers and an Arab glass manufacturer in Egypt. And this is the beginning of uh, his entire, I can do good for the region and make money in the process. And so in 94, he creates uh, Peaceworks, which sells tapenades and sauces today. Its trademark being, cooperation never tasted so good. (laughs) (laughs) Which uh, is hilarious to me. Um, right, and uh, this is a lot of this biography comes from this Forbes piece we we teased earlier, mm-hmm. uh, and I just want to tell uh, the listeners the title. It's a social spin doctor. Kind bars Daniel Lebetsky builds a at that time one point five billion dollar fortune on do gooder rhetoric, <laughs> uh, which again is pretty uh, aggressive for a Forbes profile. This is by Angel uh, Uyung. Uh, probably got that wrong, but uh, she's the author of the piece. Um, and it talks about... While you're reading it, imagine that it's the name of a death camp. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she talks about, you know, how Kind Bar hasn't really given that much to um, charity. Uh, and just uh, picking up on that uh, thing Yogi mentioned there, <clears throat> I just wanted to quote from this. Uh, after he starts his company, PeaceWorks, uh, quote, he realized this would also test his theory about achieving peace through business, sourcing glass jars from Egyptians, dry, sun-dried tomatoes from Turks, and olive oil from Palestinian farmers. Right. This is an area where Arabs and Israelis could cooperate, Lubetsky recalls thinking. And I just want to point out that um, <clears throat> maybe uh, military conditions in Israel might have gotten him a better price on those inputs yeah. than he otherwise would have gotten. Yeah. And he's, of course, able to spin this as a social cooperation between uh, former enemies, or current enemies, I should say. Yeah. While I was uh, shelling children for the IDF, <laughs> I thought it would be a nice gesture to tie a potato to a mortar. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I guess we, we, we can pick up on this again later, but uh, Lubetsky's politics with regard to Israel are kind of like two-state solution to, uh, dove where I actually did find some right-wingers who say, you know, boycott kind bars because it's too merciful to the Palestinian <laughs> people. Uh, because he's he's like a, a two-state solution guy. Right. He has uh, pictures in his office with Shimon Peres, which, uh, minor note, Shimon Peres, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, who said he visited Epstein more than 10 but less than 100 times, <laughs> has also said that Shimon Peres introduced him to Jeffrey Epstein in 2002. Oh, really? So uh, put a pin in that one. But uh, the point well, is, he's, to know your employees. <laughs> the the point is that um, Daniel Lebetsky is uh, kind of a uh, let's say liberal two state solution Israel guy, but he's still an Israel guy who writes blog posts about how Jeremy Corbyn brings anti semitism to the British Labour Party. 
Yeah, he's a liberal in the sense that uh, as long as it helps his business, he was willing to do the right thing or the kind thing, if you will. Mm-hmm. It is a Zionist liberal. Mm-hmm. It is so beautiful how yesterday, after Bernie Sanders announced that he would not be going to the APAC conference, reading APAC's statement and watching them have to fight so hard the urge to call Bernie Sanders anti-Semitic. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, they really, really wanted to do it. (laughs) Some of them still do it, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like right-wing Zionists will still call Bernie Sanders either anti-Semitic or, like, a self-hating Jew. Hilarious. But in their official statement, like, they just could not manage it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, at this point at PeaceWorks, he's selling these uh, sun-dried tomato spreads as well as, like, um, imported uh, bath salts and... Uh, uh, soaps. He threw from PeaceWorks buys just a whole bunch of stock of soaps and bo- uh, body salts. And how did they source those? Oh, Sean, how many Holocaust jokes are we gonna do on this episode? <laughs> you could cut it. No, we'll keep them all in. Um, but in the book, he describes basically being in New York and learning how to sell. He buys what he thinks is a small amount of uh, stock, but it turns out it's so large that he has to fill his entire apartment and rent a part of the basement to house all of this stuff. And he thinks that he could sell it in like a Mother's Day sale at like a Port Authority, but nobody nobody traveling through Port Authority wants to buy fucking soaps (laughs) and shit, you know, fucking fancy sun-dried tomato uh, paste. But at this time, he, he talks with Zabars, he... He travels all of New York and Philadelphia to to sell all of his stuff. And then by age 25, he is running low on cash. And this is where he gets a $100,000 loan from his father, as well as $100,000 invested from Friends. Uh, Friends and Family LLC strikes yeah. again. So if you read his book, you'll find out how you can do that too. Get a $100,000 loan from your dad. Oh, you mean take risks? <laughs> So you made it. You made it sound Seize like opportunities. He was just walking around uh, Port Authority, asking people if they would want to buy things. But the reality is, he was probably making marketing pitches to like the shops that are operating out of Port Authority. He was actually doing both. So he had set up a kiosk at Port Authority, okay. um, and then would tr- like he would drive at night in what he calls his old Cougar, which. Not a thing you call a car, by the way. Um, <laughs> but he would drive and figure out what all the stores and bodegas and grocery stores were in Manhattan, and then in the morning walk to all of them and then sell it door to door, all all the, okay. the tomato spread. It's stuff. like, yeah, I got a big discount on my kiosk at Port Authority. I just have to go into the bathroom at 3 a.m. and suck <laughs> this guy off. <laughs> it's in my book, by the way. Um, and so we'll move forward. By the way, Port Authority. Great blowjobs. <laughs> if you're ever in NYC, <laughs> I know best blowjobs in the city. I know we told you guys we wouldn't sell out and do ads on this podcast, but <laughs> we use Port Authority blowjobs and we feel comfortable advertising them to our listeners. Um, from the book, this is so between '94 and 2006 is he's traveling the world, finding new things to sell via PeaceWorks and One Voice, the charity uh, with PeaceWorks. All of his companies have charities within them that, I don't know, basically are their marketing strategy. Instead of spending money on advertisements, he has uh, charitable uh, arms that choose to you know, fund things to advertise the product itself. But from the book itself, uh, this is him talking about... In 2002, he was training for the New York Marathon. 
I happened to be in Colombo, Sri Lanka, exploring a new business venture. I was training for the New York City Marathon, and I started my 18-mile run in the capital. By the time I completed the distance, gasping, sweating, endorphins pumping, I found myself on the remote outskirts of the city along a quiet lake surrounded by Sinhalese kids and friendly fishermen, curious about my appearance. I was famished. I had a bit of money with me to get back to town. What I did not have were health, healthful, portable snacks to refuel. It was a long trip back to the hotel. This entire story is just him saying I was hungry at the end of a run, and <laughs> like that. This is the you know genius idea that began the kind future, and yeah. he doesn't even think of the idea. He goes to Australia to uh, for one of the business trips for PeaceWorks, and there he finds a fruit and yogurt bar that he's like, this stuff's pretty good, and I believe it's the Go Natural bar from Australia. And he sells that to American manufacturers like Whole Foods and a few other like health brands. But then Go Naturals gets bought by a corporation and changes their natural ingredients to um, a more chemical based. Uh, you know, they, they fucking cheapen the the bar, mm-hmm. and so all of the he- health food brands are like, "No, we don't want this anymore." Mm-hmm. And that is when he goes, oh, "Okay, I should make." bars that wouldn't be uh, watered down by any corporation that I could control the ingredients and that becomes the beginning of the kind uh, the kind legacy I mean that's that's as insight or that that's like as deep of an insight as saying I was playing Stardew Valley and I found <laughs> that if you got an acorn a pine cone and a maple seed you can make your own bar and then your energy doesn't drop anymore. And I thought, what if I made a billion dollars selling these? It's another demonstration of the inherent randomness of who right. gets to be a billionaire in addition to just the destructiveness. Well, also just having, you know, access to a uh, hundred thousand in startup capital. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. 200,000. Well, I mean, yeah. like, 200, you know, the yeah. fact that he was the person who had access to that. Yeah. That line and of also, from his dad. Yeah. Also, just the travel to or the capital to engage in international travel, mm-hmm. because like we were just saying, the way the Forbes profile describes this is in the late 90s, he landed in Australia and found a bar with whole nuts and fruit that he liked. A few years later, he tried to replicate it in the U.S., which is a very polite way of saying he stole the idea right. yeah. and he happened to have money that allowed him to steal a good idea. He did the tech billionaire thing. You know, someone else made it and then he found a way to mm-hmm. make a billion dollars off of it in America. Mm hmm. He talks about after that run story that in in thinking of the creation of the product, he could bring a fruit or some nuts with him, but the fruit could spoil easily, and it was too easy for me to eat the bag of nuts in one sitting. So impulse control in eating nuts is what <laughs> would cause kind to. And here's the thing: kind bars are are good. I won't deny that, but it's just trail mix in a bar. That's all we're fucking talking about here. It's not like it's some sort of genius innovation to put yeah. it in a square. No, it's just nuts and fruits and ch- it's just trail mix. Uh, if you squeeze trail mix really, really tight. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like Nature Valley. Yeah. It's pretty much the same thing. Well, so, yeah, Nature Valley, and I think there's another one by Kellogg's. The, it's got the fruit filling. Those two bars sell more than kind bars as it is. And those two bars. It's what, like, all this, all this is, like, what you buy at REI right before you hit the trail. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the other thing. He's designed a product that specifically is for um, the an affluent population that, can afford to eat healthily. Um, when it comes to the FDA saying that this bar was unhealthy in 2015 and changed it in 2016, it's not healthy. It's just less uh, unhealthy compared to candy. And no. in that reality, that since the prices are comparable, the FDA is like, ah, sure. But so he starts this company in 2004, and then it kind of goes on, and then 
He gets equity investors in 2008, I guess like right around the time the financial crisis hits. Yeah, and at that time as well, he meets his wife. And uh, I want to mention this story real quick because uh, they met uh, at You're a- like, and his wedding sucked. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even as good as my second <laughs> best wedding. <laughs> Only one day long. That's yeah. idiots. <laughs> Chumps. No, but they met at a uh, karaoke bar in Chinatown. Did he put tattoos all over his arms and legs? I don't think so. <laughs> and he talks about uh, her name is uh, Dr. Uh, Michelle Liebman. And he, he uh, she mentioned that like anytime someone finds out your doctor, they ask you questions. And he mentioned he had a bad back. So I gave him the excellent advice to take ibuprofen, but not the recommended dosage, three or four pills to reduce the inflammation. He let me know it worked amazingly. This is the amazing advice that uh, billionaire's wife decided to give him, by the way. Take more ibuprofen. <laughs> uh, the rest of the story is he tried pursuing her, but she was busy. And then months later, he was dating a couple of people. And then just, and once that stopped, he called her again. And she's like, yeah, let's, go, let's hang out. Hmm. That's how they got married. Mm-hmm. What, ibuprofen recommendation, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. What, what a pillar is that in his book? Uh, it's not in his book, actually. That, that entire thing. Well, actually, I probably just didn't get to it. I read the first 40%. I'm like, I got to fucking I gotta get back to the fucking taking a nap. Yeah, I mean, like, from my understanding of the story is he get uh, just from the Forbes profile, is uh, he gets these uh, uh, private equity investors as well as the founders of Vitamin Water. Mm-hmm. They buy a stake uh, for, like, $15 million in December 2008. Uh, he's later, he buys the stake back from them. Who would have t- thought someone with the exact same business model? <laughs> We we sell Gatorade, but we say it's healthy. Yeah, it's watered down Gatorade, so it's not technically as bad as Gatorade. Yeah, uh, but yeah, they he, uh, he's he later buys the stake back from them in 2014, and then um, just from the Forbes profile. Uh, he, uh, it kind of says that his investors are really the ones who w- convinced him to start giving out free samples of these things. Like he resisted huh. it at first, but I guess just quoting from the uh, profile from 2009 onward, kind took off. Uh, Lebetsky credits the expansion of the company's free sampling program as the reason for growth at the time. In 2008, kind spent just $800 giving away samples of its bars. In 2009, with urging from his new investors, kind expanded its sampling and field market budget to 800,000. Today the company has 20 mil- has a 20 million dollar sampling budget which pays the field workers and covers the cost of the free bars. Uh, so essentially mm. yeah, the company's kind of like between 2004 2008, you know, doing very middling cuz he's not giving away free samples and then his investors are like, "Hey, give these things away for free." Right. And in fact, like uh, tied up with the whole kindness bullshit. They have some sort of, I forget the name of it, but Kind Acts program. He he brags about this where if they observe people doing kind acts, oh, yeah. they will like give them a little plastic medallion, which great for the environment. Uh, <laughs> but they'll also send them some kind bars. Yeah. And this is, it's part of their marketing. This is a marketing, you know, operation that justifies itself as like, yeah, we're doing shit for charity and giving our product to nice people. Yeah, well, this is exactly the same as just when I remember in college, Axe Body Spray was giving away Frisbees, <laughs> but they've just tied it into a social uh, betterment bullshit sure. framework. And a Frisbee is fun, whereas these things are just little things. Yeah, I, d- I doubt these things can, these well, medallions can catch air. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and then from there, we mentioned in 2015, the FDA says you got to remove the word quote unquote healthy from it, but then, <laughs> they, <laughs> uh, 
uh, they they actually do appeal that, and then in 2016, in May 2016, the you actually um sorry, you're gonna have to put poison on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to put a uh, skull and some crosses on this thing. If that's all right. Uh, in, 2000, uh, in 2016, the FDA reverses itself, and now they're allowed to call their product healthy again. Right. And, and then in 2017, uh, Mars Corps bought 40% of it for an undisclosed amount, which I love that. I love that uh, they can't re- they can reveal how much of it they own, but not how much they paid for it. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, Mars Corporation, that famously kind corporation <laughs> that owns 40% of uh, kind bars. Mm. Uh, also famous for uh, human slavery in their chocolate supply chains. Mm-hmm. Future episode on the entire Mars Corp. Mm-hmm. Um, they also uh, as out f- Mars, not a real planet. <laughs> uh, as of a few days ago, Kind is now it's releasing a globalist lie. <laughs> a um, a frozen f- uh, Kind bar. What happened in the '90s to Go Natural that made the uh, health food stop selling uh, those bars is probably going to happen to Kind bars in the near future. Because Mars is probably going to buy 10 or 20 more percent of it at some point, and then they'll just add more p- poison to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think there is a trend in um, in consumers towards healthy eating. Like, at least at least people with disposable income and the option right. are more and more opting to eat healthy. So I, I think from a marketing perspective, they'll, they'll probably stay the way they are. But I do think it is uh, disturbing how, just by, like, pretending that our entire branding is based around kindness. They're able to totally avoid any fair trade, any sourcing, any anybody yeah. taking a look at their supply chains. They're just able to avoid that through sheer power of, <laughs> through sheer triumph of the will, as it were. Right. They have been able to uh, avoid any, any looks at this. And also just through um, <clears throat> uh, their, uh, you know, they're, they're able to avoid this kind of scrutiny of their supply chains, but also of their charitable giving. Mm-hmm. And, it's it's fascinating how most uh, billionaire when you talk about like a billionaire innovator, their biggest innovation is in lying. Yes, yeah. right. and I mean we we haven't even discussed the fact that the uh, bars themselves, I believe almost all of them have almonds in it. Uh, there are various combination of um, almonds, peanuts, chocolate, uh, cranberries, various fruits. Um, and pecans and some of them as well, as well as chocolate and caramel and so on and so forth. But uh, the almond production uh, uses a fucking dickload of water. Like uh, 10% of California's clean water goes to their almond produ- production. <laughs> yeah, it's very fucked up, uh, almond production in California. And I did want to just mention um, their charitable giving thing, because again, you know, we played the commercial. This is a big part of their branding. Mm-hmm. And I just want to quote a little bit from a write-up on greenstarproject.org in 2018. Oh, hold on. Uh, I just remember that people get mad if we don't play enough drops. So, um, Bob, <laughs> continue. Uh, greenstarproject.org. Uh, so this is just a write-up uh, in 2018 of their charitable giving. Uh, I'm quoting now. They donate 10, uh, kind bar. They donate $10,000 per month. So that's about a, $120,000 per year, or 0.06% of their sales revenue for 2013, God. probably about 0.02% of their 2016 revenue. Mm-hmm. This is a very small fraction of the amount donated by companies that have joined the 1% for the Planet program. For example, Cliff Bar. Even to take a random example of a large multinational food company, Kellogg's donates around 0.3% of net sales to charitable causes each year. 
So they are donating less to charity than fucking Kellogg's or whatever other major multinational you want to name, and yet they are able to brand themselves as the Not kind... Not so great! <laughs> they are able to brand themselves as the kind company just through sheer force of will. And, you know, a guy who has, like, a compelling... At least his father had a compelling life story, and he just uses his father's life story, uses the fact that it's like, if you actually, you can look at his Twitter, he always has inspirational quotes from people, you right. know, just the usual, you know, Gandhi or um, whoever you yeah, want to pick, the, MLK. There's like a Goldman Sachs interview with him, and he says something like, you know, moderately um, inspiring, and he... And the interviewer's like, oh, I thought we were going to get some Danielisms out. He's like, well, you know, I got a couple of them. And, like, that's the thing is, like, the fucking narcissism of these goddamn billionaires where every moderately interesting thought, they're like, I got to put this down in a book, you know. Let me jot this down real quick. He sounds like the, the Pete Buttigieg of billionaires. Well, would you like to guess who he is supporting for the president of the United States? Michael Bloomberg? Uh, no, uh, apparently, just according to uh, uh, Forbes' uh, uh, right up on uh, Pete Buttigieg's billionaires. Uh, Daniel and Michelle Lebetsky have maxed out to Pete Buttigieg. They have given him about $5,600. Uh, they also supported Joe Biden and Beto O'Rourke, uh, mm. presidential dropout. R.I.P. Yeah. And I just uh, wanted to quote from Forbes, other notable contributions, uh, they've given $10,000 to the Kentucky State Democratic Central Executive Committee, so I'm sure they have business in Kentucky. <laughs> uh, the the Weld 2020 Presidential Campaign Committee, they have maxed out to. It sounds like they're like, well, it's it seems like the dining room of the Titanic is flooded with water, so <laughs> I, I, I propose we, uh, we move to the sitting room. But I just like their I mean, delegates is weld up to zero. <laughs> yeah, he's getting wiped out. He's Bill Weld is running uh, in the Republican primary against Donald Trump, and uh, I, I, he's lost in a landslide every single time he's been on the ballot. But they decided to give him two thousand eight hundred dollars for some reason. They could have given it to us. Honestly, this is probably some of the best work this guy has done. <laughs> is just supporting all of these dead end candidates. <laughs> Um, but I guess with the time we have left, we can talk a little bit about palm oil is something I did want to mention while we were here. Uh, cause again, it, we also mentioned it on the Giovanni Ferraro episode, but it's worth revisiting these things because, you know, in terms of like the damage these people are doing, I think chocolate and palm oil are definitely numbers one and two. Yeah. And the entire reason they use palm oil is because it has a better shelf life. So they can use any oil, but it would make it so that their products would expire faster. Right, and uh, just quoting from that same greenstarproject.org write-up, uh, palm oil is an ingredient in many of their bars. It's near the top of the ingredients list. They mm -hmm. use a lot of it. Kind passes this off, saying they are the member, a member of the Roundtable of Sustainable Palm Oil. That means almost nothing. Almost every major food company <laughs> is a member of the Roundtable of Sustainable Palm Oil. As I mentioned in this post on palm oil, uh, the Roundtable has been widely criticized for poor in enforcement and just weak guidelines. Round a, a round table with billionaires all sitting around it. It's like so. It is agreed. Slaves. <laughs> uh, and just to talk uh, very quickly about palm oil and what it's been doing, I, I wanted to quote from a QZ.com write-up. Um, they say. 
Kind of like how, you know, soybean production has resulted in a lot of uh, people burning fires in the Amazon rainforest in order to clear mm-hmm. land for soybean production. A very similar thing has happened in Indonesia. Because uh, who's, who's already living there who has any political power? <laughs> uh, according to QZ.com, Indonesia supplies 56% of the world's palm oil um, as of the most recent count, um, the forests are forests are burned deliberately by palm oil producers each year. But this year's burns, uh, I believe this is a 2019 article, but this year's burns are especially destructive due to drier conditions that are causing the fires to burn out of control. Between 2001 In the and South Pacific, <laughs> there's a lot of fires. <laughs> Between 2001 and 2018, Indonesia lost 16 percent of its tree cover or nearly 26 million hectares of forest, according to a database kept by Global Forest Watch. The loss of these forests resulted in the release of the equivalent of about 10.5 gigatons of carbon dioxide emissions. Um, And then just the, uh, the very horrifying kicker paragraph I will quote from here. That's one of those numbers where you just don't have a mental reference. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make any fucking sense. uh, Yeah, I guess that sounds big. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I did just say 10.5 gigatons of carbon dioxide. Like, yeah. this is bad, people. I don't, <laughs> I don't know the reference numbers, yeah. but, but when I hear gigatons, I get yeah. nervous. I'm, I'm picturing a lot of crates uh, with poison that's now in the air. Some, it, it, I'm not sure how those connect, but I, it feels bad. It feels like it should be bad. Oh, guys, just just so you know, um, the crude palm oil futures are skyrocketing right now. Oh, wow. Skyrocketing. Wow. So, like, from July of last year to now, it's gone from about $550 per metric ton up to almost $800. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and this might have something to do with, the again, this last paragraph. Wait, does that have anything to do with... Uh, current supply line issues or is that I think it might have something to do with China and Malaysia okay like their supply chains are disrupted from like you know coronavirus and all that shit it is it is interesting that for the last several years David Harvey was saying that yeah you know if anything happens to the Chinese economy that's kind of the end of it for uh, the world economy and now it's like oh here we go Uh, but just like one last paragraph in this QZ article, uh, again, to put the um, deforestation in Indonesia in perspective. Uh, from 2008 to 2010, palm oil plantations were responsible for almost 60% of all deforestation in the country. Now that figure in 2019 is closer to 25%, according to a Duke University study. But that is not because the overall rate of deforestation has decreased. On the contrary, deforestation has increased in Indonesia overall but now factors like drought are playing a growing role so you know it is just something where the, oh, that the probably has something to do with coronavirus <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll also think the trade like the trade war between us and china right. Oh, right, was also right. going on still then right but like sure. this this fucking guy a kind bar discloses nothing about how they're sourcing their palm oil so in all likelihood they're getting it from these fucking illegal plantations caused by you know burning the forest to the ground uh, palm oil is responsible uh, was responsible for about 60% of all deforestation and now the only reason palm oil is responsible for less for 25% is because global warming drought is making up the difference <laughs> right. i mean yeah. oh yeah that's right california droughts a multi uh, how can a multi-billion dollar company have the resources to check up on their supply lines (laughs) i am not getting paid to reply to everyone on the internet who raises this issue 
They just they couldn't think of anything better to do with that two thousand eight hundred dollars they gave to Bill Weld's presidential <laughs> campaign. <laughs> just could, literally putting money in your fucking toilet pipes. You could have bought palm oil futures. <laughs> Get on on the ground floor of the very thing that's disrupting your business. Go to where the money's going, not to where the money is. <laughs> He also does that thing where he calls the employees of kind uh, family, you know, the team members. Oh God, right. I'm so they glad did, I didn't get that job. They, when I worked at Whole Foods, they called us all team members, right. and they would also fire you if you attempted to unionize. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this business insider piece talks about how he, this kind CEO asked for two months' notice from departing employees and up to two-year notice. Hmm. Hey, what are you going to do in two years? I don't know. Maybe quit this job. You know what that says to me when I'm at a job like that? Huh. Same day notice. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you want this uh, this guy, you know, he, in his book, he talks about how he really allows his failures to inspire his good ideas. And so from this uh, Inc.com profile, it, he talks about uh, some awful ideas. And this is a direct quote from... One time I thought we should start a PeaceWorks Cafe in New York City. A customer would pay for two lunches, one for himself and one for a homeless person, and then have lunch with that homeless person. I thought this would be a great innovative way to connect people and help them discover each other's humanity. I was absolutely serious. My team pointed out all the reasons it wouldn't work, and I realized it was not achievable. But he could have had a, a homeless person tell him the truth about Lyndon LaRouche <laughs> and Tower 7. I mean, he also does this thing where he gives his employee kind, awesome cards. And you don't need someone to tell you the truth about Lyndon LaRouche. You need Lyndon LaRouche to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, kind, awesome cards are like you, you see someone do something nice and you give them a card and it's like a coupon for a kind bar. And then the employee goes, hey, this is much better than a bonus. <laughs> No, I think the employees are given it to give to other strangers. Oh. They're supposed to notice other people being kind. Oh, I mean, right. We oh, talked yeah. about that. I did yeah. notice that. that. That was a thing at my interview where they're like, free kind bars. And the whole time I was thinking, like, if I take one, is that a trick? <laughs> is that one of the interview tricks where they, they're they like, would you like water? And, and that's that's test number one. If you one. say right. yes, they go, you're fired. Yeah. I just, I really hate it. You haven't hired me yet. <laughs> His whole angle of like, you know, I want to I want to promote peace by allowing people to build bridges by doing business with each other and not just, hey, we're all human fucking beings. So how about we stop killing one another? Mm. It's such a obvious glaring thing that like, well, if people are more focused on making money instead of killing one another, then they'll see how people all need money. <laughs> well, he even talks about like doing both, like doing good right. and making oh, yeah. money in business. Uh, sorry, this is the last thing I wanted to mention about the book. He fucking opens this stupid fucking book by being like, at our company, we make sure to do something very specific where instead of saying or, we choose to ask yes and. <laughs> so instead of let's be a company that works with Palestinians or Israelis, why not a company that works with Palestinians and Israelis? Yes. Instead of being a company that promotes health foods and is good for the... Like, he fucking took the improv concept of yes and yeah. and made it into a business pillar of his goddamn corporation. My favorite is when, like, uh, I mean, I know he's not an Israeli-based company. When, uh, we, when we try to sell, when we try to sell kind bars, we think, okay, uh, what is our customer's characters? What is our customer's <laughs> relationship? What is our customer's objective? And uh, when is this taking place? Where? 
Uh. I was just going to say, my favorite thing with like Israeli companies is, you know, they'll, uh, they'll say, oh, we're doing such a charitable thing, employing Palestinians, you know, in Gaza, where it's like 50% unemployment. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they're in a great labor bargaining position when they deal with us. And uh, we could just report them to our government and they'll lose their <laughs> license to cross the border and make a living for their family at any moment. Yes, he actively campaigning for them to end the blockade, or is he just taking full advantage of it? Well, he has not. Uh, I didn't uh, research his position that much, but he has not said anything, to my knowledge, of ending the blockade in Gaza. We could advocate for an Israeli state or a Palestinian state, <laughs> or we could advocate for an Israeli state and, and a Palestinian state. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the yes. dude's a major chooch. And the status quo is making me a lot of money. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, and I guess just to kind of move towards closing out here, I did want to just r- briefly revisit uh, the uh, supply chain thing. Uh, GreenStarProject.org, again, the same write-up. Uh, their cacao is not certified and no information is provided on sustainability or supply chain. Shade-grown? Organic? Slavery-free supply chain? Fair trade? Sometimes it's e- easy to overlook the lack of certifications on a label or ingredient list. In fact, there's no information available on sourcing or sustainability of any of their ingredients, either on the label or on their website. So, I mean, it's like this company that their entire thing is branding themselves about their kindness. If they didn't have slavery in their supply chain, they would brag about it. They would talk about their certifications, but they don't have them. So you can basically 100% assume that they are using the uh, worst and most illegal uh, sources of cacao and palm oil and still charging like $2 a fucking bar for these things. What if they split the difference and they're like, we have some of the kindest slavery. (laughs) We don't use whips. Yeah. <laughs> we find a uh, motivational tool where we use slavery and positive reinforcement. <laughs> yes, and you can work 80 hours and another 20 hours. <laughs> yes, and we'll teach you how to read the instructions on the machinery. <laughs> Um, and, and I guess I just wanted to, uh, last thing I have is talk about his personal politics a bit, which is, uh, at least as far as what he says publicly, kind of a munch, mushy liberal centrism, which is mm-hmm. unsurprisingly that he donates to people like Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden. Uh, he gives a, an interview to Yahoo Finance in 2019 where he says, quote, the problem in our society is that we're getting hijacked by extremism. Mm-hmm. Across the world, the rise of totalitarian, uh, totalitarian thugs and dictators, and in the United States, the increasing strength <laughs> of the extremes. And so when he says the increasing strengths of the extremes, he's, of course, referring to, in addition to Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders in the right. United States. He doesn't say Bernie's name, but it's very clear what he means. Mm-hmm. Uh, (laughs) quoting from him, this tiny amount of extremists wake up in the morning and they think, how can I advance my cause? And they want to stop at nothing. The vast majority of people are moderates, but they wake up in the morning and they think, what can I have for breakfast? Extremist versus moderates is not whether you're from the left or whether you're from the right or whether you're from the center. It's from anybody. You can be a conservative and be able to listen to the other side. You can be a progressive and be able to listen to the other side. It's when we stop listening and we think that we all ha- we have all the answers that we start getting into trouble. A lot of ands in that sentence. I don't know if you guys noticed this. Yeah, I, I did. You could be one and the other thing. I mean... Oh, this guy's this guy's re- realization that copays human- and premiums. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie Sanders, a Jewish individual and an anti-Semite. Mm. 
Um, and I guess just the last thing I wanted to quote is he writes this blog at, at peaceworks.net, mm-hmm. blog.peaceworks.net. He opines on various subjects. And I, I just wanted to quote from a uh, 2016 one where he addresses um, an op-ed called Anti-Semitism of the Left, which I believed was a New York Times op-ed. Um, and I'm just going to quote from him. Uh, the rise of leftist Jeremy Corbyn to the leadership of Britain's opposition Labour Party appears to have empowered a far left for whom support of the Palestinians is uncritical. <laughs> like, that's a bad thing. <laughs> and for whom, in the words of Alan Johnson, a, a British political theorist, quote, that which is demonological, that which the demonological Jew once was, demonological Israel now is. Corbyn is no anti-Semite, but he has called Hamas and Hezbollah agents of, quote, long-term peace and social justice and political justice in the whole region, and once invited to parliament a Palestinian Islamist, Rahid Salah, who has suggested Jews were absent from the World Trade Center on 9-11. Corbyn called him an honored citizen. The, quote-unquote, Corbynistas on British campuses extol their fight against the, quote-unquote, racist colonization of Palestine, (laughs) which, again, where would anybody get this idea? As one Oxford student, James Elliott, put it, Elliott was narrowly defeated last month in a bid to become youth representative on Labour's National Executive Committee. So he's using James Elliott, who uh, lost a bid to be on Labor's National Executive Committee, mm-hmm. and who called the coloniza- the quote-unquote racist colonization of Palestine. Uh, he's using that as an example of an anti-Semitic extremist on the Labor Party. And where would people get the idea of a racist colonization of Palestine? Uh, just a uh, and you can ask any Palestinian who has attempted to build anything in the fucking West Bank right. because they will deny your building permit if you are not ethnically Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will bulldoze your fucking house if you are not ethnically Jewish. Uh, if you are one of the Palestinians living in the occupied West Bank or Gaza, good luck voting in those Israeli Israeli elections. Like, this is why we call it apartheid. It is These are Bantu stands. Their destiny, there's a blockade. Their lives are completely controlled by the Israeli government, and they have no input into the leadership of that government. Gaza is bombed on the regular. Um, something where if it happened anywhere else, it would be called by the international community a genocide. Anywhere else besides Yemen. Right. <laughs> From Daniel Lebowski. What is striking about the anti-Zionism derangement syndrome uh, that spills over into anti-Semitism is its ahistorical nature. It denies the long Jewish presence in and bond with the Holy Land. It disregards the fundamental link between murderous European anti-Semitism and the decision of surviving Jews to embrace Zionism and the conviction that only a Jewish homeland could keep them safe. Dismisses the legal basis for the modern Jewish state in UN Resolution 181 of 1947. Hey, have the board changed since the UN resolution of 1947. Uh, That's your legal basis, apparently. Um, And he says, you know, it's not colonialism, but a quote-unquote post-Holocaust view of the world. Arab armies went to war against it and lost. And, you know, he says... I think a uh, better post-Holocaust view of the world is, hey, let's stop doing genocides. (laughs) But, you know, to each their own. Uh, and yeah, he says, you know, criticism is Israel is needed in vigorous form, but a uh, demonization of uh, Jewish people is a very different thing. And of course, by implication, he's saying Jeremy Corbyn and the British Labor Party are engaged in that. So this is the kind of guy who's throwing around, you know, millions of dollars in. Our and p- claiming that he's being kind about it. What a fucking chooch. Babe, I can eat out your box and eat your butt. Uh, Louis back, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> can't, can't be a grub episode without me talking about butt. Uh, 
Uh, but I, I think that gives you a good idea of Daniel Lebetsky. I think that gives you a good idea of um, the supply chains that go into Kind Bars, the uh, horrific environmental destruction and labor abuses, and uh, their entire marketing campaign is how kind and decent they are. So don't buy the bullshit. So before we close out the episode, we wanted to mention uh, a comedy friend of uh, myself, Andy and Yogi, who uh, passed away. Of course, the very funny uh, comedian, Steve Whalen, uh, known as Mr. Jokes, who was a person that uh, we were all very familiar with just doing comedy in, in New York City has uh, very sadly passed away and we wanted to just briefly mention him and his life and uh, what it has meant for the the three of us. Yeah, I remember when I came to New York, you meet people at mics that uh, you'll never forget and sometimes they're just random wackos that uh, <laughs> talk about conspiracy theories. Most but, of uh, the time. Sure. Yeah. But uh, Steve Allen was a... Uh, How do you think this podcast was formed? <laughs> he's he's one of the guys you... Oh, sorry. No, you're right. Uh, Waylon was one of those guys that like had a lounge singer, uh, a giant personality, and could command any mic, however good or bad the mic was going. And um, some people are so dedicated to their character, you almost forget that they're people when they get off stage, because that's the type of person uh, Steve Allen was. Yeah, it's it, he's to build on that. You know, one of those guys that you'll never forget, but also you would want to talk to after the show. Mm -hmm. Like he, um, he, he, he was able to kind of bring an old school, old school comedy sensibility uh, to the stage. That I think at the time, you know, so many people were um, stuck in the uh, uh, kind of introspective side of comedy. Uh, so much that like he was able to, and I, I don't mean to like define him in a negative way, but he was able to, um, you know, just bring fun to comedy. You know, he would, he would uh, pop his, his mic under his leg and go new mic trick. <laughs> uh, he like, he, he embodied silliness. He, yeah. there's a lot of uh, stand up right now. That's very uh, trendy and edgy and cool. Um, and Waylon realized how empty that was, I think. And uh, when you get to see a performer that truly loves uh, silliness and being, you know, funny, f being silly for humor's sake, but not take themselves so seriously like Steve did, it um, it it connects to people in a way that um, writing the best joke about the Holocaust doesn't, Sean. <laughs> he had a great love for comedy, and uh, you know, you see that in his love for like the the vaudeville and the old Catskills tradition, mm -hmm. and his love for Rodney Dangerfield, and just kind of like the jokes he would tell about you know his agent and his mother-in-law, which are like kind of a throwback, but it's it's just so I guess when you see it, particularly if you know the history of comedy, it's it's so refreshing, and there's there's such a love and a joy there in the in the history of stand-up comedy in the United States. You know, just people where. You know, even the old kind of, uh, let's say, cliched mother-in-law jokes, they have a, a warm familiarity about right. them when he delivered them. And, and it was always so good to see him at a show or an open mic or whatever else. And I'm just going to miss seeing him around. And even even outside of his comedy, the one time that I saw him really break character, and it was, it was on social media, but it was actually uh, how I found out uh, the first thing I saw about um, the death of Eric Garner. He made a, a post about where he was just completely disgusted by it, and it was it was some post because he was from Staten Island, and he uh, just said something about like Staten Island being a bastion of hate. Um, was his response to um, just his his immediate visceral response to what had happened to that man? And I thought I I think that that. Um, 
kind of spoke to his heart um to put it you know in a corny i mean that that sounds corny but it it he he really beyond also being the guy who had the zingers who was who was you know nice you know a very sweet guy to everyone very fun to talk to um i once got uh his i love this crowd shirt and he was like yeah i had some extra so here it is for a discount like you know that, that was just kind of guy he was and even even beyond that like it wasn't superficial he was a sweet guy he 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 was a very kind guy and i he uh i don't know what happened but i don't think that matters i think what matters is is way too young um and he should still be with us and he's not and that's um that's tragic i was gonna tell a magic the gathering story about him but kind of hard to top that eric garner thing for uh <laughs> epitomizing the seriousness of his legacy no, go and ahead the decency of his i was just gonna say i like so i didn't know him that well we would see each other at, at shows and stuff but he's always very kind very funny and uh one time he saw me wearing a magic the gathering shirt because mm-hmm. he also played magic the gathering which had the is it which is the, the blue red color combination logo and he said, ah, Sean, I should have known you would be an is it elitist. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently he played uh, Simic Blue Green. But uh, we, we played Magic a couple times. But uh, he was, uh, God, I, I'm just really going to miss him. And, you know, between him and, and Raghav and uh, all our fucking comedian friends dying. Uh, the thing I've loved the most about this uh, has been seeing the amount of comics that have written about every great memory they've had with them. And... You don't realize how much a person means to a scene until something like this happens, which is devastating. But at the same time, it's very easy to forget that um, people remember the kind things you do. You know, I've realized the only time I log on to Facebook anymore is when one of my friends dies. (laughs) So I think Mark Zuckerberg is killing my friends. (laughs) Because, you know, you get to see all, all your friends and your people you know just share all these different memories about right. them in a, in a way that you don't really get in, in other social media platforms. And, uh, I mean, it, it's just, it's very sad, but it's heartening to read about what a, what a good person he was and all the different uh, people that I loved who, uh, who loved him and whose lives were enhanced by knowing him. I think, um, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll sign out and then I think uh, it's okay. We play a few minutes um, at the tail end of his sizzle reel. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, this yes, and with that, this has <laughs> been uh, Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Paul. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Steve Whalen, actually a kind bar. What did you? What did you write today? <laughs> Take it easy on me, folks. It's hard out there for a guy dressed like a (laughs) 12-year-old. Dating is very difficult for me. I took a woman on a date recently. She said, can I buy a bottle of wine? I said, go ahead, baby. Do whatever you want to do. She left. (laughs) It's hard for me to relate to women, to relate to their interests. Took a woman on a date. She said, I love to cook. I said, that's great. I love to eat. She said, I love to go biking. I said, that's great. I love to eat. (laughs) I took a woman on an online date recently. Has this ever happened to you? She looks nothing like her profile picture. This happened to me. In her profile picture, she wasn't crying. (laughs) I'm having trouble with the ladies. Last night at 2 a.m., I texted a woman, you up? She texted back, no, I am not up. (laughs) 
never had success with the ladies. I asked my second cousin to prom because the first one turned me down. <laughs> It's hard to be intimate when you're a fat guy like me. I asked a woman to put her arms around me. She said she had to be at work early the next day. <laughs> but enough about the sex jokes, right? Sex this, sex that. I'm one of those guys, I don't like sex. I've made up my mind. But uh, maybe I shouldn't knock it until I've tried it. All right, fellas? <laughs> you know what's really hurting me? It's hurting me because I'm fat. I'm not going to lie. I'm a big fat guy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> You want to know how fat I am? How fat are you? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I'm so fat I went to Burger King and I overthrew him. That's how fat I am. <laughs> so fat I had an intervention recently. They said, Steve, you're here for overeating. I said, great, let's get started. <laughs> You think I'm feeling the pressure? What about this stage? All right. <laughs> I'm not that fat. I just retain French fries. I do. <laughs> I try to lose weight. I'm on the paleo diet. Me and my pal Leo eat mozzarella <laughs> Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Ma'am, is uh, is that your boyfriend? Yeah. Sorry? Yes. No, I heard you. I just said I'm sorry. <laughs> Got any ladies in the crowd? Ma'am, are you into desperate guys? Uh, no. Please, I'll do anything. Please. <laughs> 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 uh, let's see, what do we got? Ma'am, what do you do? Uh, Ma'am, what do you do for a living? Say it's dark in here. Uh, electrical contractor. Electrical contractor. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I don't do a lot of jokes about electricity. It's hard to stay hip and current, people. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Got it. What do you do for a living? <laughs> you work for a nonprofit. Join the club, buddy. Hey, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> what do you do for a living? Sure. You design denim. I got news for you. They already made denim. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for a living? What is this, a corporate gig for nonprofits? Oh, she works there too. All right. Man, what's your favorite TV show? Uh, True Blood. That's on uh, HBO, right? Well, that's weird because you look more like a fox to me. You know what I'm talking about? You watch TV? Of course. What's your favorite TV show? The Biggest Loser. <laughs> Professionals. <laughs>